Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. If, like this text says, we must worship in spirit and in truth, then we need the truth. And you give it to us. I pray that you'd help us see this morning what you have to say to this Samaritan woman and what you have to say to us. And I pray that we'd believe, Lord, that we wouldn't just read your words, hear your words, and go unchanged, but that you would use your word to do your work, to soften our hard hearts, to build up what's been broken down, to heal what's sick, and even to bring to life what's dead. Father, would you do that in the power of Jesus? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we took two weeks at the beginning of the year to talk about our need to daily be in the Word. This is what we do every year. We need to be daily in God's Word. And then we talked last week about our need to daily be in private prayer. That was a quick break from the Gospel of John. If you remember, we were in John on Christmas Eve, and then we took a break. And on Christmas Eve, we started John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, we're introduced to a Samaritan woman. She's drawing water from a well where Jesus is sitting in Samaria. While she's coming to get drinking water, Jesus tells her that he can give her living water that will satisfy her soul forever. And what he's talking about is God. He's telling this Samaritan woman, she's not a Jew, he's telling her, I can satisfy the thirst in your soul by giving you access to God. It's an amazing claim, but she doesn't understand We saw that in verses 1 through 15. She still thinks he's talking about the fact that he can give her better drinking water, like from the well she's drawing from. So, Jesus is going to come at her from a different angle. I just want you to notice how long this conversation is. I mean, in the Gospels, we don't have a lot of long conversations with Jesus and another person. We, We saw one in last chapter. He spoke to Nicodemus. Just compare these two people. Nicodemus is an important religious man who's a Jew. You think this guy, if anyone ought to be saved, it's this guy. And Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And now here he is speaking to a Samaritan woman who's living an immoral life. We're going to see, and Jesus is out to satisfy her. He will not stop until this woman drinks living water. We have an amazing Savior. Now, the language of this conversation is going to shift from water to worship. We talked about water a lot in the first 15 verses, and we're going to talk about worship a lot in these 11 verses. And what we're going to see in this passage is that this woman's need for living water, which we saw three weeks ago, is a need for right worship. She has a need for right worship, and Jesus is going to show her that. That's the first thing we're going to see. Then we're going to talk about what it means to worship the Father in spirit and what it means to worship the Father in truth. So that's where we're going. Now let's talk about this woman's worship need. 
If you've been studying, if you are studying this passage for yourself, we've said one of the first things you want to do when you come to a passage is look for key words, repeated ideas, repeated phrases, and in this text, we've got one. We've got one such word, and it starts with W. It's worship. So in the Gospel of John, the word worship shows up 12 times. So in the entire book, the word shows up 12 times. In these 11 verses, it shows up 10 of those times. Worship or worshiper. Which means this passage probably is about worship. And it is. So my question was this. I was saying, okay, this text is about worship. Verses 1 through 15, we were talking about drinking living water to satisfy our soul's thirst. This week is talking about worship in the conversation. Has the subject changed? We were talking about living water, drinking living water, Now the Samaritan woman and Jesus are talking about worship. Has the subject changed? And the answer is, I think, no. Drinking from living water, which is having your deepest soul thirst, which we all have, we're thirsty inside for meaning, significance, fullness, life, can be quenched by enjoying God, which is worship. That's what worship is. Worship is when your soul is drinking from who God is. The subject hasn't changed. They were talking about this woman. You need to drink from God. You've got thirst in your soul, and you need God to satisfy it. And now they're talking about worship, and they're talking about the same thing. Here's why that's, that's good news. Many people think about worship as your obligation to show up somewhere, sing some songs, say your prayers, give your money, and sit still for 30 minutes or more while someone else talks. And overall, it's a drain on your soul. That's what worship is. It's an overall drain on your soul. If that's your definition of worship, it's wrong. According to this passage, worship is is being refreshed in your soul by drinking deeply of who God is. That's what your soul needs. It needs to drink from God. And that's what we're doing when we come to worship. Now, you'll notice in the first 15 verses, Jesus told this woman he can give her water that will satisfy her soul's thirst forever. And when she doesn't understand what he's talking about, which she doesn't, in verse 15, she says, God, I'd love I'd love to not have to come to this well anymore. When she doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about, what does he do? He exposes her soul's thirst. I think that's what's going on in verses 16 through 18. Look at 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, in this woman's life, there's one sin we know of for certain. She's living with a man who's not her husband. That's sin. It's wrong. God's commanded that it not be done, 
and she's doing it. Even though she's a Samaritan, and we read about Samaritans, Luke did earlier, she still claims to live under the law of Moses. So she knows that what she's doing is wrong. She's willing to disobey God, and that's what sin is. How does sin relate to the thirst in your soul? Our soul is thirsty to be satisfied, and it can only be satisfied with God. Whenever we disobey God to satisfy that thirst in our souls, that's what sin is. That's what sin is. We're thirsty. We want to be satisfied. And whenever we disobey God to satisfy that longing in our soul, that's what sin is. Jesus is exposing this woman, pointing out to her a place in her soul where she's trying to quench her thirst apart from God. Now, this text says the woman's been married five times, even before the man that she's living with. We should be careful because we don't know why she had five previous husbands. A lot of people teach this text, and they just assume that she's an adulteress, she just likes moving from one relationship to another. We don't know. All we do know is that five times this woman has either been divorced or her husband has died. John doesn't tell us why it is that she's been married five times before. So we should be careful before we assume. What we do know is that this woman has been through a lot of tragedy. Divorce or the death of a spouse is always painful. If, you're, if you've been divorced, even if it wasn't your fault, even if you were blameless in it, it is always a tragedy. It is. Even for some people who finally reach divorce and it feels like a relief, it only feels like a relief because of the amount of suffering they were going through before that point. It's soul-tearing. It always is, and so is the death of a spouse. And one or both have happened to this woman five times. And Jesus brings it up on purpose. Consider that. Jesus knows she's had five husbands. She's not married anymore either because of death or divorce, or some combination of both. He knows that she's with a man who's not her husband, and he says to her, go bring your husband, come back. Now, if Jesus weren't the best, kindest, gentlest man who ever lived, we might think he's being mean. I mean, if you knew someone, you were meeting someone, you knew their past, you knew they had been divorced or they'd lost a spouse five times, and that they were living with someone who was not their husband, when you introduced yourself, would you say, hey, why don't you bring your husband and we'll talk? No way. No way. Why would Jesus do something like that? Is Jesus mean? Does he think it's funny to knife people in their most vulnerable place? No. He does it because he knows she's thirsty. And he's exposing her thirst. 
Next week in the text that we're going to be in, verse 29, she's going to go to her neighbors and her friends, and she's going to see, say, come see a man who told me all I ever did from this, from what Jesus says right here, which means whatever he's getting at here when he brings up her five husbands and the man she's living with who's not her husband, it's striking something very deep and significant in her soul. One way or another, she's been wounded. Maybe it was her fault, maybe not. But her soul is thirsty. And now at least, she's trying to satisfy it apart from obedience to God. Jesus knows it. Before the conversation starts, he knows it. He just wants her to know it. Which is a reminder, Jesus will wound you in order to heal you. Jesus will wound you in order to satisfy you forever. And he's not doing it because he's malicious or mean or thinks your pain is funny, but because he wants to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. And often we don't recognize it, and it takes some painful digging to get there. But he'll do it because he loves you. It's not an accident that this conversation moves from our soul's thirst in verses 1 through 15 to this woman's painful past and sinful present, and now it's going to move to worship. That's not an accident. This woman's soul thirst is a thirst for God, and worship is drinking from the fountain of who God is. That's what worship is. When you're engaged in worship, when your soul is praising him, enjoying him, that's how your soul drinks. Just lock that in. If you want to know, okay, I feel thirsty. I don't know what to do. My soul feels like it needs something. It's longing for something. What your soul needs is to drink from God, and the way your soul drinks from him is through worship. Jesus wants that for this woman, and he wants it for you. He wants it for me. So that's what's going on in this woman. That's her worship need. So let's talk about what it means to worship in spirit. Jesus is going to use that phrase, true worshipers worship the Father in spirit. It's the woman who brings up worship. Do you see that in verse 19? She's the one that brings up worship. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, there are lots of different opinions as to why she does this. Some people say, oh, she brings up worship because she realizes he knows something about her that he shouldn't know, so he's a prophet, and now she's got a theological question to ask him. I don't think that's what's going on. I think she's trying to divert attention away from the painful wound that Jesus just stuck his finger into. We all know how to do this. You've been at dinner with, an extend, with your extended family and your uncle at the end of the table brings up politics? I think Modi is the best president India's ever had. These are great potatoes. Thanks, Grandma, for the potatoes. You've been married five times, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. What do you think about these two mountains, Jesus? You're obviously a prophet. Where should we worship? Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? Let's talk about that. But this is where Jesus has been going all along. He wants to talk about worship. 
She needs the thirst in her soul to be quenched by God, and that's what worship is. This is exactly where Jesus wants the conversation to go. Now, the Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim. Luke read what happened. The Assyrians took Israel, northern Israel, away, and peoples of the land moved in. They worshiped Yahweh, the one true God, alongside of other gods. It was a mixed religion. They built a temple on Mount Gerizim, and they claimed against the, against the Jews that this was the place where real worship happened. So I think she's asking to divert attention away from her pain a theological question about where worship should happen. Now, that word worship originally just meant to bow down. That's what that word means, to bow down, to bow your knees, to bow out the waist. It's a physical activity. It's a physical activity that you do towards someone or something. If you're going to worship, you know, okay, I'm going to go bow down. And the next question is, where am I going to bow down? To what am I going to bow down? What direction am I going to bow down? And you know, that's a big deal in this country. Every building, there's a place you can find on the ceiling that's going to point you in the direction that you ought to bow. Jesus' answer to the woman is revolutionary. She's saying, where are we supposed to worship if you're a prophet? Where are we supposed to bow? Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus' answer She's asking, okay, where should we bow down if our worship's going to be real? And he's saying, not on this mountain and not in Jerusalem. That's what he says in verse 21. He says, the place where your worship will be in spirit. It's in verse 23. Not in Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem, in spirit. When Jesus says that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, There are two things he means. First, the place where worship happens won't be a physical place. It's going to be inside your soul. That's where your bowing down is going to happen. The physical world, it's made up of stuff, matter. It's in different locations. And Jesus is saying, worship is not about the placement of your body directed towards the right stuff in the right place. That's not what it is. I'm not talking about a physical location. I'm talking about a spiritual one. Worship happens inside when our hearts are bowing towards God. That's what worship is. It's our hearts bowing towards Him. That's the first thing that Jesus means when He says that true worshipers worship in spirit. Here's the second thing. What it means to worship in spirit Worship will happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I love working slowly through books of the Bible because we're able to dig up some really good stuff. We, we march our way very slowly, usually paragraph by paragraph. But because we spend so much time 
Sometimes we can forget the things we talked about just a chapter earlier because a chapter earlier was like a month or two ago. It feels like a long time ago, but just one chapter ago, chapter 3, Jesus was telling Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Chapter 3, verse 5. Here's verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Jesus was telling Nicodemus, you need the Spirit of God to work on you if you're even going to see his kingdom. You're a man of the flesh. You need the Spirit to make you a spiritual person if any of your worship is ever going to be acceptable towards God. God has to do that to you, Nicodemus. So when Jesus says that true worshipers must worship the Father in spirit here in chapter 4, he's got to also mean your spirit has to worship God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Place is not what matters. What matters is in your heart, by the power of the Spirit, are you praising God? Now notice in verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So he says, God is spirit. God's not made out of stuff and limited to a place. For physical creatures like you and I to relate to one another, we relate physically. Normally, it means my physical eyeballs look at your physical eyeballs. If I'm going to say hi, my physical hand shakes your physical hand or I give you a hug, but that's not how we relate to God, not now at least. The way we relate to God is when the Holy Spirit allows our spirits to engage with Him in praise and worship. That's how worship happens. So what does this mean for you, to worship in spirit? First, it means that you cannot come to God and worship in your own power. If worship happens in spirit, and we mean by the power of the Holy Spirit, that means if your worship is ever going to be real, if you ever have a moment of sincere enjoyment and fellowship with God, it's because the Holy Spirit made it happen. Which means very practically, if you're coming to worship God, either in your devotions in the morning, you're coming to a service like this, you should pray beforehand, God, would you help me worship you? Because we can't do it in our own power. But he's willing, that's what the Spirit does. Here's what it also means for you. It also means that if you can tell that your soul is spiritually dry, you don't have to wait for the next Saturday to drink. You can drink wherever you are. If your soul approaches God in praise and adoration and humility and trust, that's how you can drink from Him. You can do that in the car, at work, at home. Worship is not coming to a physical place. This is revolutionary for ministry. Revolutionary. Worship can happen anywhere. We're not crossing 
oceans and national borders to tell people if they want to worship the one true God, they need to take a pilgrimage to the place where you can find him. We can cross borders and oceans and tell people wherever they are, wherever you are, you can drink from the living God. That's what Jesus has done. He makes it so that anyone, anywhere can worship him. This is what Jesus wants. He means for it to be that way. Jesus does not mean for all the Christians to gather in one Christian nation together. He means for the glory of the Lord to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, every tribe, tongue, and language. We worship in spirit. It's an amazing thing for ministry in our personal lives. Jesus doesn't just tell us, though, that we worship in spirit, does he? He says we worship in spirit and truth. Notice in verse 22, Jesus tells this woman that place is not what matters in worship, but he also tells her that her worship as a Samaritan is false. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Now, if you stopped right there, you might think, well, she's worshiping. So even though she doesn't know correctly what she's worshiping, maybe it's real worship. But if you keep reading, Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, there is no salvation in Samaritan worship because Samaritan worship is not based on true knowledge. It's really important. You're going to meet people who are sincere, deadly sincere, in their worship of a false god. But their sincerity doesn't mean that they're saved. Samaritan worship might be heartfelt, but it's not based on truth. That's why there's no salvation in it. True worshipers must worship the Father in truth. You cannot assess someone's spirituality based on their sincerity alone. But many of us do this, especially if you're a sympathetic, compassionate person, which is a really good thing. It's really good to be sympathetic and compassionate. But it's very easy to see someone weeping, and they mean it. They're worshiping a false god. They really mean it. And you might think, well, at least they really mean it. At least they're not being a hypocrite. Surely God will see how they're sincere and will accept their worship. Wives, would you accept your husband's love for another woman so long as he sincerely loved that other woman? If you drive 130 kilometers south, are you going to reach Dubai? No. You may have driven very sincerely, and you might say, well, Dubai's 130 kilometers away. You're not going to reach it if you're going south. Sincerity is not a substitute for the truth, not in marriage, not in directions, driving, not in worship. Sincerity matters. It really does matter. God doesn't want hypocrites, but some of the greatest villains in the world were sincere people. Nazis in Germany were sincere in believing the world would be a better place 
without Jews, gypsies, or people with disabilities. And their, sincer their sincerity is one of the reasons they were able to do so much evil. Sincerity in the right direction is what matters. Truth matters if we want to worship the Lord in a way that's acceptable to Him. So hear this. This is so important. It's so important for us here, especially in the mixture of cultures and religions in the UAE, really across the globe. There is one way, one way to God, and it's through Jesus. The only way you can know God is if you are trusting Him, yourself, to save you from your sins and to, to restore your fellowship to God. Jesus Christ was crucified to pay for your sins. That's what He's doing on the cross. And because He was sinless, death couldn't hold Him. He's risen from the dead so that if you trust Him, you can be united to God forever. But that's the only way. Truth matters. You have to know Him through Jesus, or you don't know God. But you can. You can. I mean, that's the good news. You can know God through Jesus. And it's not just a one-time knowing. Like, I drank from God when I first prayed to receive Jesus. As you grow in knowing the truth, you can drink more and more deeply, which is amazing. Truth doesn't simply send our worship in the right direction. It also is the fuel that keeps our worship burning. If the UAE built a rocket to go to Mars, they would need to point it in the right direction. You don't want to point the rocket sideways. You want to point it towards outer space. But pointing the rocket in the right direction is not going to get it to Mars, is it? There has to be a massive explosion of fuel that sends that rocket into outer space. We need truth to point our worship in the right direction, but truth is also the rocket fuel that launches our worship. The Holy Spirit is the one who has to make worship happen, but truth is the fuel that he ignites. Which means, if you don't have truth to worship over, your worship's not going to burn very hot. This is super practical. The rocket will only launch as high as the fuel it has in its tanks will take it. Your worship will launch only as high as the truth you have stored up in your mind and your heart will take you. So very practically, the process of worship is this. If it's in spirit and in truth, you ask the Spirit to help you. You ask God, oh God, by the Spirit, would you help me worship? And then you take truth from this Bible, you think about it, and then you engage God over the truth you read in prayer. Can I give an example? This is a personal example. I don't want to be the hero of my own story. But two days ago, I was doing this, reading my Bible and praying. I prayed for help. I said, God, please, would you help me as I spend time in your word? I want it to be real, sincere. And I know I can't do that by myself. And I read Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, David says in verse 2, he's talking to God, 
He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And so I read that and I thought about it. Okay, what does it mean that David has no good apart from the Lord? What does it mean for me? I have no good apart from the Lord. Well, first, it means that any good thing I have, like my food, my home, my family, the enjoyment of a body, a Christian body, health, any health I have, any happiness I have, any good, it's come from God. That's amazing. But it also means for me to have no good apart from God, it also means that He is my good. Even if all these good things that He's given me were taken away, if I still have Him, I have what I need. He's where happiness, life, joy, fullness is found. God is my good. And then I prayed. I turned into prayer while I was thinking, God, everything good I have, you give it to me? Thank you. I mean, I know myself well enough, and I know what your word says about me to know I don't deserve any of it. Thank you. And God, you are the one who satisfies my soul. I really don't have any good apart from you. It's you. You're where fullness of life is found. I want to know you more. And do you know what was happening? My soul was drinking. My mind and my body may have been more exhausted when I was done, but my soul was full and satisfied. Are you dry? Is your soul thirsty? Listen, if you don't know Jesus, if you've not confessed him as Lord, you cannot be satisfied apart from him. Come to him. Come to Jesus. He will forgive all your sins, and he will bring you to God where you can drink and be satisfied. And for those who are believers who do know Jesus, do you know what to do when you feel thirsty? You will. You will, you will feel thirsty. You drink from God by worshiping. It's so practical. If you have the awareness to know, I feel dry. What do I need? I need to ask God for help. I need to think on the truth in this book. I need to praise Him, thank Him, bless Him for what He says, trust Him for what He says. And that's how my soul will drink from living water. So drink. That's what God wants for this woman. It's what He wants for you. Now, this woman tries to wiggle free from this conversation one more time. In verse 25, this is one of the reasons I don't think she's being sincere when she asks him about the two mountains, because in verse 25 she says, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. It's like she's saying, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem, you say spirit and truth, whatever that means. The Messiah, when he comes, he'll clear it all up. Conversation over. But Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And this woman leaves, and she goes and tells her friends and her neighbors that she's met the Christ, and she believes and drinks from living water. That's what Jesus did for her, and it's what he does for us. Let's pray.
Thank you, Jesus, that you have opened the way to living water for us. Thank you that you show us who your Father is in truth. Father, thank you for sending your Son so that we can know the truth. And through his accomplishments, providing the Spirit for us so that we can worship something we're totally unable to do apart from your gracious Spirit. Thank you. I pray, Lord, that for those who do not know you and have never tasted and seen that you're good, that you would give them a drink, that they would come to your Son to be forgiven, to have his righteousness claimed over their unrighteous life and to be given the Spirit, and to be satisfied. And for us in this room who do know you, we have leaky buckets. We can be full one moment and thirsty the next, but the drink that satisfies is you. So help us to come to you in worship, in spirit, wherever we are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and in truth, through what you say, to worship and drink. Would you do this by the power of the Spirit that Jesus purchased by his death and resurrection? And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.